0: going to have time to look at things in detail for good reason, Um, but we are going to look at some very important things about what it tells us about God. So let's open up in prayer as we uh, seek his guidance and him to teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, your word is truth, your word is beneficial. Every single page of it is written for for our good and for your glory. And Father, as we come to what might seem to be a not particularly helpful or not particularly relevant portion of Scripture. We acknowledge that you told us that all Scripture is profitable and useful. Lord, we pray that we might see something of your heart and your character and your, what it, how it is that you relate to a people in this world. Lord, I pray that you would work through me as I communicate, that you would help me to communicate clearly, that I would be communicating the very heart of God as reflected through these passages. But Lord, I pray for myself and all of us, that we would hear your word, that we would be in awe of who you are, that we would capture something of who you are, that we would be more deeply in love with you. As through as we discover more of who you are and how you relate to us, and so do your work by your Spirit through in us and through us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. So we've been going through the Book of Exodus. We've gone right through the point of four hundred and thirty years of the of the Israelites being in slavery in Egypt. God miraculously delivering them out, bringing them out of Egypt to make them a people for his own self. Last week we have seen um, a lot of interactions, poor old 80-year-old plus Moses up and down Mount Sinai. And on this occasion he's up Mount Sinai for 40 days for 40 nights. And part of what happens during this encounter is God gives him the instructions for the building of the tabernacle. Now I don't know about you, but if I've ever had a high and lofty idea Of spending 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of God, dimensions and materials aren't probably really the the ultimate experience that I had in mind. But we're covering a lot of material, I said 25 to 31 and 35 to chapter 40. Those two sections are almost identical in the way in which they're structured. 25 to 31 is God giving the instructions of how to build it, what materials, what dimensions, and we're not going to spend too much time on that detail, so no need to pull out your tape measure. And the second half, 35 to 40, is the actual building of it, showing how what they were instructed to do, they actually do. So that's the reason why we're grouping those things together, because one is just the instruction to do it, and the second is almost mirroring it with a few minor changes um, where they actually did it. But what we do see in that, with all of the detailed plans, materials, and how things are to be done, that the end result was this. According to all the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I did last week. I told you all of the 11 chapters we were going to cover. I encourage you to read it throughout the, throughout the week because we weren't going to read 11 chapters here together this morning. But if you did read through it, you'd probably think with all of that instructions, you think, man, I would have taken shortcuts. That just seems a little... Does it have to be that exact dimension? Does it have to be that exact material? But we see they hear the very words of God and they follow it word for word, as they were told. Now the question you might be asking is, what happened to chapters 32 to 34? Is this the big skip over, we just chuck it out, we don't like that bit? Uh, Samuel will be covering that material next week. The reason why we are grouped together 25 to to 31 and 35 to 40 is because they're all dealing with the tabernacle and as far as I'm aware, I haven't polled the people, I presume people wanted uh, one sermon on this rather than 11 chapters and 11 weeks on this. But during this time that Moses is receiving the instructions, not only for the building of the tabernacle, but a tabernacle that would function as to how they come together in their worship of God. But while he's away 40 days and 40 nights, next week we'll see the impatience of the people who end up setting up their own alternative means of worship as they await Moses to return. So we're not going to all the details of these chapters for two reasons. One is, we're not commanded to build a tabernacle. We don't need to know the measurements and all of the things because we don't need to go home and build one. And secondly, 11 chapters, I think it would probably take longer to read the 11 chapters than this sermon's going to be. So we're not going to have time to go through every single minor point. Uh, We will highlight a few key points. But most of all, we're going to consider why is it even in here? Why Do we not even just skip over it? Why do we even speak about it as part of our sermon series as we go through the book of Exodus? I can't remember which night it was, but one night this week, our now just one-year-old Mackenzie was having a really bad night's sleep, kept being unsettled, kept waking up, many trips in and out, not getting much result. Her and Miller share a bedroom together and we don't want one waking the other up, although it inevitably happens. And so eventually, I go in there with Kenzie. I bring her out. We go out and we sit in the lounge room. I think, okay, we're just going to sit there, put the telly on, she'll fall asleep, and she did pretty quickly. And when I put the telly on, um, they had it was that Nine Life Channel, you know, that reality about it's all about house renos, building, all that sort of stuff. And there was a show, Extreme Houses, was what was on at the time. If you've ever seen a show like that, they tend to be really eccentric people building these really out there kind of houses. Um, the, the two ones that we saw while Kenzie was falling asleep, one was a house that was built up in the middle of the trees in the middle of a forest um, that you almost couldn't even see from the, from the outside. And the other was a houseboat which had a basement. Like it actually had an underwater bit and all the things that went in there. And some of those things, as you look at them, you think, why would you even bother? I know it's fun, but why would you even bother doing these things? They're so unnecessary. But the things that we look at and say, why would you bother? Stupid, waste of time. If you were to ask the person whose idea it was, I can guarantee they're going to have an answer for that question. They're going to have a very passionate answer about why they're doing what they're doing and what they hoped it would achieve. So if you look at any particular house or any particular building, but here we're focusing on the sort of household idea, it tells you two things. It tells you something about the person who builds it or who planned it and desired it. But also it tells you something about the purpose, the design, why, why they wanted this thing to be built. So as we're looking uh, at the tabernacle this morning, that's primarily where our focus is going to be. What does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about how God relates with people within this world? First things first. Have you noticed when you describe something, you tend to start with the bits you think are most important? And when we look at the instructions regarding the tabernacle, they're not placed in chronological order. The very first thing that we come across in these 11 chapters is regarding the Ark of the Covenant. But when you look at Exodus chapter 37, it wasn't built before the tabernacle but after. So the fact that it's placed foremost and forefront tells us something. This is important. This is something important in this chapter. This is where the focus is to be. And it's not just that this is the place where those those tablets and the commands will be placed within. As we look at Exodus chapter 25, we see what is important about this very Ark of the Covenant. It says, and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony I will speak with you about all I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. So the tabernacle's not just about a place where people can gather together to worship. It's not just a place where people can gather together to meet. You can do that anywhere. First and foremost, it is a place where God has chosen to dwell amongst his people. Where he will meet with them, where he will speak. Throughout Exodus, we've seen the promise of God that he would be with his people. That he would be present with them, that he would guide them. But God's presence with the people isn't a case just to be there so that if they do the wrong thing, he can give them a backhander. His presence with them is that He's actually for them. He is working for them. He's 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 on their side. He's for their benefit. Now, this tells us something major about our God: the fact that He would dwell amongst His creation. He would dwell amongst a broken and sinful people who will often reject Him. Now this sets Christianity so far apart from most other religions where their idea of God is something so far and distant who is so displeased with his creation that only by you doing something good enough maybe you might twist his arm to think that you you could be acceptable to be in his presence. This is the sign of a God who dwells amongst a people who would stoop to be in the midst of his own people. We see that right from the beginning of the Bible. God creates people and he's dwelling amongst those first people. But even when the effects of sin brought that separation, we see a God who loves and cares enough to restore that relationship still desires that relationship and to be amongst the people. And he's the one who initiates. You're not going to see the idea of initiating relationship with people come from any other religious idea. But as we go back to chapter 6, not only have we seen in the past God initiating things, we see God came to Adam and Eve, God came to Abram, God appeared to Moses the burning bush. Chapter 6, we see here what he speaks with regards to the nation of Israel. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the great, great slave deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment I will take you to be my people I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians so from day one God's initiator he says I'm going to bring you out I'm going to take you to be my people I'm going to dwell amongst you Now despite, even though they've seen all the miraculous things that God has done, all of the plagues in Egypt, all of the ways that he brought them through the Red Sea, all the ways that he provided for them as they travel along, both in terms of their food and their drink and everything they need, they still doubted him. They still questioned him. But despite all of their failures, God is preparing them that he is going to dwell amongst them in their midst. But the excitement is more than just His presence being there, God dwells with His people, and He speaks with His people. But just because God is now dwelling amongst the people, doesn't mean you just casually stroll on up. That everyone's got easy access. We have seen throughout this series that God is holy. He can't just be approached on any terms. As we're looking here with particular regards to the ark, you notice in its construction, there were rings placed along the side so poles could go through. So as they transported, and the tabernacle was a portable thing, they would move it as they go with them. They would carry it by the poles, because even the very ark where God's presence would dwell above that was so holy that they couldn't even touch it and live. We know the example of Uzzah in 2 Samuel chapter 6, who as they are travelling at times times when it comes unsettled, and he touches the ark and dies throughout Exodus we've seen many times that fallen humanity cannot look upon God in all of his fullness and live we've seen moments where they've seen something of the glory of God but we've also seen not everyone has equal access to God under the old covenant as we looked at some of the previous Sinai encounters we see how there's been different tears how Moses has been brought nearer to God than the others then Aaron and his sons, then Joshua, and then the general people. Different levels of holiness, different levels of access to God. And we see that also too in the structure and the way in which this tabernacle is built. So let's look at this dwelling of God. The instructions, they're elaborate. All the minute little details, the things that to be used to do them, yet they do it exactly as they are called to do. Now if you read through it, I can tell you there's probably two things you remembered. Acacia wood, that seemed to come up heaps and heaps. And lots and lots of gold. If you've got an NIV, or another translation, you would have probably also been stunned by the idea that you use the skins of a sea cow or a dugong. Funny thing to come across in building construction. But to give you some idea of the grandeur of what's going on here, to convert some measurements, we're talking one tonne of gold. Now, Daryl's into jury, One tonne of gold, that'd be pretty handy to have on, have on deck. Three and a half tonnes of silver, two and a half tonnes of bronze. Now, this isn't a way of saying, when you build churches, you need to put heaps of gold and heaps of silver and heaps of bronze. It's, that's, it's not the example that's being set here. But we're starting to see something of the magnitude, not only of God's delivering a people out of Egypt, but how he said he would bring them out with the spoils, with the gold and silver from there, how abundant that actually was. But the work which was to take place wasn't contracted out. Like Wagners didn't get the job to go build the tabernacle. Carl's quite happy that he's not working on the tabernacle. But as we look at chapter 35, we see these words. Let every skilful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded See, addressing the people says, if you've got the skills and you are God's people, use your skills for God's purposes. Sounds very similar to some of the New Testament ideas. Romans chapter 12 says, if this is your gift, use it. That the community of God's people have been gifted by God and they're called to use what God has given them um, for the glory of God. But not only is it called about those who are skilled, and it says... Everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linens and goats' hairs, tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Or if you've got NIV, you can put in your, your sea cows instead of goat skins there. Apparently, translation wise, it could go either ways. And you'd imagine if you're reading, you think, sea cow skins? Probably not likely to have them there, so they go the other way, but God can do whatever He likes. So, got all the resources, the people, the materials. Every single thing that we have, our skills, our materials, they're God's. God has given to them its right to to glorify God in what he has given us. It's almost so Though the people here are working, to use New Testament language, God's people working together as a body. Everyone's carrying out and doing their function. Let's have a look at this building. This is sort of a a rough sort of fall plan. So so, to put in our measurements, sort of like 46 metres along the top Side and 23, so it's almost like two 23-metre square areas that, that constitute the tabernacle. But as you look at the, the construction, there's three tiers of access or t- three tiers of holiness in terms of getting closeness to that place where the presence of God dwells. The place where you entered here on the right side of the screen, you come in through, through the entrance and the very first thing that you come across is the altar of burnt offerings. Now, there's a reminder from the very moment that you even come into the outer court where the everyday people could go is that a death needs to take place, a substitutionary death, in order for you to be accepted, in order for God to dwell amongst the people. Then there was even places where you would need to wash. As a reminder, there need to be wash. Then there was an extra level, the holy place where the priests would do their work, where there's a table of shea bread, 12 12 loaves of bread representing the different tribes. The priests would be responsible for for making sure that is replenished. The the lampstand, which is to be kept lit, and the altar of incense, that last thing before going into the place where the very presence of God is uh, as a way of almost mystifying or making, so you can't look upon him and live. There's three different levels. You've got the area where the everyday people can come and bring their sacrifice. You've got an area which the priests can access the holy place. But then the holy of holies. One priest, the high priest, can enter that into where the presence of God is one day of the year. And even then, he can't just go in there because he's the high priest. But only then, with the blood that has been shed on behalf of the animal, on behalf of the sins of the people. Just to give you a sort of an artrous rendering of how things would kind of look, you have it there. So it's only the, the holy place that actually has anything by way of covering over the roof, whereas the rest of it is external. And with all of the sacrifice going on outside, a bit of air is probably good. But when you look at this grand work, you can't help but think of something of the grandeur and the holiness of our God. And all the extravagant nature of it, but also the levels in which God's presence is there and how you can only access God by the means by which God has provided. Like even when you walk in the place, from the moment you see there's there's an altar for a burnt offering where a substitutionary death has to take place for you, God, to even to dwell amongst the people, to wash yourself, to be a rituals and all those things to come before and to get access to have God to dwell amongst us. But this constant reminder of a God who dwells with us tells us something. This is a God who is awesome. A God who is something very other. Is not a God who is common to just be approached in any way whatsoever. But an almighty, powerful God. A perfectly holy God who stoops to dwell amongst his people but not only dwells amongst his people provides the very means so that we can dwell in his presence provides them in graciously that we can be accepted in his presence that we can atone for our sins but before we think uh, oh, it's only the really vile who who couldn't come into the presence of god now how often does that happen in a conversation we're having someone we think here someone say well god's surely going to accept me into his presence because now oh, i'm pretty good i do this this and this but as you consider what we've looked at in the construction of the tabernacle, and you think, even the high priest, even the person considered the most holy of the, God's community of people, even he just can't come in there any old way that he wants to. Like Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus chapter 10, do go into the holy of holies. They are priests, but they do it in a manner that wasn't prescribed by God, and they die. God can only be approached with complete holiness. It must only be approached by the means he has provided. We may never come in on our merits, we may never come in by doing certain things, but only by coming in by what God has provided and that provision is with the provision of a blood of an animal who has died as a substitute for a people. When you look at the priests, they've got specific instructions of how they can enter. Specific instructions of how they are to prepare themselves. Specific instructions of what they are to wear. And as you look through this section regarding the priests, their clothing and how they conduct themselves, the constant refrain, and if you don't do this, you will die. Something that's very telling is this. When you look at the description of the the materials that are used in the, the clothing for the priests, as well as the symbols that go on, they're actually almost identical to that of the tabernacle itself. Now, I'm not saying that the priests are a tabernacle in themselves, but a the way of visibly showing that what the tabernacle represents of God being amongst his people, there is a visible reminder that their role as priests is to bring God to the people as well as to bring a people to God. On their turbans there was a signage saying on them holy to the Lord to remind them that they have been set apart by God. They've got a reminder on their breastplate of the 12 tribes of Israel that they're representing. The role they had was a high privilege but not one to be taken lightly. Nobody is right to come into the presence of God because of their position, because of their merits, because they're good enough we come to God on his terms by his provided way. 11 chapters, eh? What do we why do we even look at a chapter about building a tabernacle? I said beginning. It tells us something about God and it tells us about how God relates to his people. It reminds us that our almighty God is not distant. Our almighty God has stooped and is dwelling amongst his people and desires and initiates relationship with people. I think sometimes we become a little bit too familiar with that. The fact that God would enter into a relationship with fallen mankind, we've heard it so long, we've been familiar with it so long, that we think, oh yeah, of course he would. I think we don't directly recognise it, but I think something in the back of our mind thinks... Of course he would. Now I'm pretty good. I've done this, this and this. I want us to sense something about the fact that this God, when we see in the building of the tabernacle, you do something differently outside of what his instruction was death. This Almighty God, who is above all rule authority, has entered into relationship with us, and we know how desperately we fail him. He is utterly holy. Our only hope of dwelling with Him is the means He provides. But it shows us that He's a loving God. He's a loving God not only because He initiates and dwells amongst the people, but He provides the means by which we can be accepted by Him, that we can have our sins atoned. When we look at the Israelites for 40 years, they wander around before they enter into the Promised Land. You can imagine they would be thinking, God's promised we're going to get into this land. Where is God? Yet God provides them this tabernacle where his presence would go with them everywhere they go. Lest they be tempted to think, where is God? Where is the God who promised us these things? And even though they fail much during those 40 years, through the tabernacle they have a place where God has provided a system by which when they do fail, they can be restored in their relationship with him. But when you think about the tabernacle, particularly when we looked at some of those measurements of gold, silver and bronze, you think, man that was pretty special. That was something really precious about that thing. And I want you to sense the idea of a ton of gold. I didn't bother going online and finding out what the today's value of that would be, but it would be a lot. I'm not going to put Daryl on the spot, he might even know or have a rough idea. But as grand as that all is, it's only a minor glimpse of something greater that was going to come after. The next greater thing that it represented was the temple, which was even bigger and even more opulent than than the tabernacle. But even that is only a minor glimpse of something greater to come. Just like all of the Old Testament laws, rituals, feasts, festivals, sacrifices, find their fulfilment in Christ And they point to Christ. They find their ultimate expression in Jesus Christ. The same is said of the tabernacle. As John introduces Jesus in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, after he said, in the beginning was the word, word was with God, the word was God, down to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt. The term there dwelt is literally tabernacled amongst us. And we have seen his glory, glorious of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. No longer is God's dwelling amongst the people as massive piles of acacia wood and gold. God is dwelling amongst his people in the person of Jesus Christ. God incarnate into our world and John says, and we have seen his glory. Now as we think back to the grandeur of the tabernacle and the temple, all of that gold, all of the expense, all of the, the opulent nature of it, Yet speaking of himself in Matthew 12, 6, Jesus says something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than a tonne of gold, two and a half tonnes of silver, two and a half tonnes of bronze is here in Jesus Christ. And as Jesus famously spoke of himself as the fulfilment of that tabernacle in John chapter 2, when the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And he answered, destroy this temple and after three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years for us to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But John helpfully tells us this, he was speaking about the temple of his body. So we see this um, increasing, thing, beginning with the tabernacle, a pointing of a way in which God would dwell in this world. But as we live today, there is no tabernacle, temples destroyed 70 AD Jesus Christ who came to tabernacle amongst the people has returned to the right hand of the father are we left without a place in which god dwells within our world as paul writes to the corinthians in chapter 3 do you not know now i've used some australian english here because in english you we use you for singular and plural so i've done use to express the fact that it is plural so so don't think that the ESV says "use." Don't look it up at home. It doesn't. Do you not know that you's are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and yous are that temple. Speaking collectively of the church, and as church, I don't mean a building, I don't mean an event on a Sunday morning. The people of God, he says, you are the temple of God. You are the means by which the presence of God is made manifest in the world in which we live. Now that comes with a bit of a challenge, doesn't it? That God is present. God meets with the world through the church. When we ponder our own local gathering of a church, can we say, if people came into our community, is it a place where they would meet God, where they would see something of the nature of God working through his people? Now, it's not just a one-verse wonder. Ephesians 2, Paul speaks the same thing about the church being built up as a holy temple in the Lord. But while the primarily the focus is upon the temple being the corporate, the, the, the church, In chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, Paul then goes and applies it in an individual sense. He says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of his body, but the the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you are bought at a price, so glorify God in your body. As we've seen things regarding the building of the tabernacle, the tabernacle mainly was there for God's presence, but it was there for the glory of God amongst the people. There was no way, you see, that they would deviate from the instructions. There was no way they would bring unclean things into that tabernacle. And Paul uses that analogy saying, you are the the temple of God, the God's spirit dwells within you. No, the very thing that the high priest would be nervous about entering into once a year dwells within us on a daily basis. He says, and because of that, you're not going to bring what is unclean into that. I think sometimes we need to take seriously the idea of how do we treat ourselves as the temple of God? Why would we defame the reputation of the one who gave his life for us? As a general rule, I like to think of it this way. If you wouldn't do it in heaven, or if you couldn't do it in heaven, it's probably not glorifying to God, is it? He says, says, don't do this with your body because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You've been bought at a price. You're not your own. You belong to him. So use all you have for the glory of God. If it's not something that you would or could do in heaven, unless it's just a not a sin issue, it's just a they may, you may not be able to pat a dog in heaven, I don't know um, then potentially it's not something that brings glory to God. Now we're not like the tabernacle builders where we're worried that if we do something specifically wrong that death's going to automatically happen. Now, I love and I need the reminder of Paul that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Not that we are to take that lightly. But learn this. As we look at the tabernacle, we see where God's presence is. Those who were deemed the holiest are given closest access to his very presence. Now that is no different for us in terms of our access to God. Our sin will be a hindrance between our relationship with God. The old expression is either God will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from God. Or as Jesus put it, it says, you cannot serve two masters. You'll either love one or hate the other. Or the way I like to put it is this way. You cannot enjoy sin and enjoy God at the same time. Now, I've been a Christian now for 22 years. And you want to know something? I'm still needing to learn this. It disgusts me how frequently I need to learn this. I still need to be reminded of it but the essential truth of it is this when I enjoy sin I don't enjoy God when I enjoy sin my joy in God is greatly reduced because they are at odds at one another Paul says in Galatians 5 when he talks about the works of the flesh, the deeds of the spirit says, there are complete odds one will put you this way and one will put you this way when we enjoy sin, we will not enjoy God. And unfortunately, I've found in my life and also in conversations with others, so many times people talk about they don't know the joy of their relationship with God, yet they don't want to let go of something. They want to enjoy a sin. You cannot enjoy sin and enjoy God. But the other, good, other flip side of that, I found when I enjoy God, I don't enjoy sin. So when we enjoy sin, we don't enjoy God. When we enjoy God, we don't enjoy sin. And when I enjoy God, there is fullness of joy. It's who I was created to be. It's what the spirit who dwells within this temple longs and groans and desires. When I enjoy God, I don't enjoy sin but as we see the progress of this analogy of the, the tabernacle, temple, Jesus, church, we also long the day when we escape the entrapments of this temple, this temporary temple that is our body, with all of its failings and fallings that we experience. Revelation one gives us this picture of the new Jerusalem. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, And the city has no need for the sun or moon to shine on, for the glory of God gives its light, and the lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honour of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's coming a time we will dwell with him in all of his fullness. All of the corruption of this world will be no more. Uh, we look forward to that day. But as we look forward to that day, and may we look forward to enjoying God in this life on a day to day basis. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even in something that might seem so trivial as the tabernacle, we see something of uh, your heart for a people. Lord, we're thankful that we live at the time in history in which we do, where uh, we don't need to come and repeatedly offer sacrifices of animals um, just to constantly to deal with the sins for all of our many failings. Lord, we thank you that Jesus Christ was the final sacrifice once for all to deal with sins that he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Lord, we pray for us as a church corporately and also as the people who make it up individually, that we going to understand our role as being your dwelling amongst the people of this world, that, Lord, the people may meet with and see something of your character through our lives and through how we relate to one another as a church. Help us to remind you that we have been bought at such a great price that we might seek to glorify you in all that we do. That our life might not be defined by the enjoyment of sin, but by the enjoyment of God, who loved us, who has provided for our salvation, and who dwells within us by your Spirit. We give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen. And just as a reminder, because we may or may not, depending on Samuel,